everyone, welcome back. It's me, Truman, Kevin, got Return to Reason Engineering Politics here again. Um, Kevin, what are we doing today? This is something I know we're both pumped for, but what, what are we doing here, bud? Yeah, man. Um, so this crazy guy came up to me a couple of weeks ago and said, there's this awesome book. Um, I think he said something about like QAnon, told him to read it. I don't know Correct. Uh, the background of everything, but... Uh, yeah, this good book, which I've heard of a million times, because the funny thing is, I've I feel like I've read like a third of this book through other books who have referenced this book. Right. So, uh, you know, what we're talking about today is The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek. And I know like I, I've read a couple of quotes of him in, in Thomas Sowell books. And the way I like to think about it is Thomas Sowell brings all this empirical firepower to the conversation. But as I can see by reading this book, that all of the like logic centers are just F.A. Hayek because what he does in this book is he doesn't put a lot of numbers in it. He doesn't do a lot of that stuff. It is just like logic, logic, logic and, and helping people kind of think through um, some some of the bad stuff they're getting themselves into. So that's what we're going to start doing is reviewing the book, The Road to Serfdom. Yeah, that's right. So <clears throat> you had this is your first time, like really just going all the way through it. Right. So you would just. Yep. You, so you, when did you finish it? Did you just finish it uh, within the last couple of days? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think I finished it on Thursday. Okay. And then I've reread, you know, the, the material going over now sure. four times since then. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like Kevin said, we're going to be going through, we're going to do this. We're going to be aiming for once a week. Um, and today we're just going to be going through the kind of introduction of Road to Serfdom. Um for me, on my part, I originally read this book. So, I mean, I've talked about my political evolution and just <clears throat> ideological evolution in the past. And I just started off just realizing I didn't know anything. Um, I didn't know anything at all. And so I was just anything I could get my hands on that seemed relevant or important or um, <clears throat> noteworthy based on people that I was listening to or reading, uh, I would, I would just consume it. And so Road to Serfdom was one of those books, I believe. Um, Thomas Sowell is who I heard quote it, I think. Um, <clears throat> I just, I know that it was, I think the summer of 2017 is when I first read it. Um, and it just blew my mind. I mean, it absolutely blew my mind. <clears throat> and as I've mentioned numerous times before, um, it was one that after I finished it, I was just literally calling people to try and talk to them about it because there was so much that I just needed to process um, <clears throat> and and to sort out, especially, you know, and as we will get into this stuff as, as we do later episodes, um, there was so much that just seemed relevant for a contemporary moment um, that it just, it scared the hell out of me, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> and so... It was that concern um, and, and that, I guess, just, I don't know, enlightenment is probably not the right word, but, you know, I felt like all of a sudden I'd been exposed um, to someone who lost well, smarter someone than me. Who, who, but someone who's previously, I mean, you've been open about this thing in 2016, you voted for Bernie, at least. Right, yeah. Of him in the past. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, so, this book seems like it was written for, you know people like that. And even as someone who comes from the right, who's kind of always agreed with these types of things, uh, you know, I found a lot of value in reading it as well. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, I voted for Bernie in 2016 and then Hillary. Um, and just, you know, I, I had this very, honestly, idiotic view of what socialism was. Um, <clears throat> and I, that was starting to um, dissolve before I even start, read this book. But um, once, once it was, this was the nail in the coffin for a lot of, a lot of ideas that I had previously thought were credible. Um, <clears throat> and so anyway, yeah, so I'm really excited to do this with you. It's, it's super fun. Um, and so for the, to, you know, we'll explain to the folks at home, um, what we're going to do is, you know, the, the book that we went through is the definitive edition. And so it's got a bunch of extra stuff in there, introductions, it includes like the forewords to other releases, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, and so it's just a lot. There's a lot there um, that uh, unpacks like the history of the book and reception and all these other things. So that's what we're going to do today is go through like that first. I mean, I think it, you said it's probably about a third in it of the book itself is just in the oh, definitive yeah. edition, all this yeah, stuff. It's a um, thick section of the book. Yeah. I always gauge every book I read by when you get through the introduction, the foreword, the preface. And then I always look at how thick those pages are compared to the rest of the book. And then I'll even, you know, a lot of books that have large appendices, I'll take that. And I'm like, all right, what's, yep. what's the meat of this book look like? And I mean, this book is dense. It, it is dense. Um, dense. We're going to try to break it down here as well as we can. But also something I want to mention before we move forward, uh, for those of you, you know, we're going to try to our best to review this book and give all the important details and conclusions, but there is nothing better than reading the book yourself. And mm -hmm. it's an important thing to note that Audible has this for free. So if, if you're you have an Audible if account, you plan on listening to us moving <laughs> forward, right? Well, of course, yeah. Um, so if you plan on listening to us moving forward, I think we're going to do a great job at breaking down the book. Uh, but even better than that, I think, would be to to listen to it as, you know, we go along. If you listen to chapter ahead of time and then you can listen to us kind of break it down and, and kind of, you know, join the conversation, if you will. So I think that would be a, totally. a fun thing for people in the audience to do. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I totally would have spaced on it. In addition to that, you can find a PDF version for free online. So uh, I'll be sure that, you know, we have links to to that. Um, whenever we post this <clears throat> and in any, and all the subsequent ones. Um, but yeah, so you, you can get it for free, uh, on audible, if you have an audible account and a PDF for free. So there's no excuse to not at least follow along a little bit. So it's like the best parts of a book club, right? Like you don't have to read it. You can, you probably should, uh, but you can just hear us talk about it and give you the, the bullet points. Um, so before we get into it, Kevin, what are you, what are you drinking? What do you got going on there? <clears throat> Oh, I got this very, very simple, Jameson. Yeah. As I've been uh, explaining to you, for some reason, my, my house is really cold. And maybe it's just because the outside is extremely warm. It's like 95 degrees where I am right now. Mm -hmm. um, and just the AC in here is making it seem really sure. cold. So I need something to warm myself up. And Jameson normally does a trick. Yeah. Also, it could be menopause. I mean, what do you I got? Know, like, um, you know, what? it could be the air conditioning. Could it's be been a couple of flashes, but I just I don't right. think there's anything important. Uh, flashes, lost my cool at a, at the microwave earlier. Um, so I got the rest of this Jack Daniels Tennessee honey my buddy brought me while we were doing that Think Spot thing. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I don't have a whole lot of it left, but we'll probably get through it um, during this. And then maybe I can get to some proper whiskey because I actually, I think Jack Daniels is absolutely disgusting. Um, 
Okay, so Kevin, kick us off. Let's. Who is F.A. Hayek? Who is this guy? Tell 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 me. Tell everyone who is Hayek. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, so I have a just a brief history listed here. I don't think we have to get into you know his birth and what his parents did and all that fun stuff, but just a, a quick rundown of the man. Uh, Frederick August von Hayek uh, was born in Austria in 1899. He served in <clears throat> World War I. Uh, he lived and worked in Austria, Great Britain, the United States, and Germany before becoming uh, an official British subject in 1938. So he's had experience, and you can tell throughout the book of his experience in Germany before the war, which really becomes relevant uh, throughout the book because it's yep. better to have that experience and just to learn it from somewhere else. Um, when he was uh, uh, working as a professor in, I believe he's at the London School of Economics, um, he yep. became a rival of John Maynard Keynes, the man behind Keynesian economics. Uh, and then when World War II started, he asked, he wrote a letter um, to, to ask me place in a position of service for his adopted country as someone who could lead a propaganda ca campaign for German-speaking countries to remind them of their liberal roots because he believed, as he explains in the book, that they drifted away from their liberal roots and started to reject liberalism, and that's why they went to total totalitarianism. Uh, but he was denied uh, that position because uh, he was an immigrant of Great Britain, and he was a born subject. So this book and a lot of other work that he did was his way of contributing to the cause, even though he couldn't in an official capacity. Uh, and then just beyond that stuff, he also won a Nobel Prize in economic studies in 1974. So uh, yep. he's been recognized uh, for things outside of this book. But um, this is certainly, I think, his, his most memorable work for sure. sure. Yeah. And I mean, a couple of things just to add to that. I mean, pe people hopefully are at least a little familiar with Ludwig von Mises. Um, Mises, if you guys, Carlin Brasenko, our friend, is all about the Mises Institute. So it's like a part of, it's a branch of libertarianism, basically. Um, <clears throat> and there's like this, the Mises caucus. So anyway, Mises was Hayek's mentor um, uh, for starters. So he has a lot, there's a lot of like the, you know, osmosis, I guess there, where he, he got a lot of his ideas um, from Mises. I think they diverged a little later on whenever it came to <clears throat> what government programs. Um, but regardless, he, he had a lot of, amazing influence just on his own intellect he also was an influence on someone uh you guys probably are familiar with george orwell uh reviewed this book and it wasn't long afterwards that he wrote in 1984 um and was influenced a great deal uh, by this book <clears throat> as well um and i think it's also worth noting that you know we're, we'll get into the process of how this book is written and what you know the iterations what it started as you know seed to to fruit um but I think part of the reason that he was why the British turned him down uh, for writing propaganda is because by the time I mean, when did when did Britain and France declare war on Germany? What year was that? 1939, maybe 38. 38. Uh, 38 so, he, <clears throat> so he'd been a very vocal opponent of socialism and the stuff that was going on in Great Britain before the, the war even happened. Uh, and so I think probably part of the reason why they didn't want to write propaganda is because they wouldn't have agreed with his propaganda. And, you know, at, at the end of the book, he actually addresses propaganda <clears throat> um, and its role in the war. But I, I think, I truly think that was a big part of it. Um, because as you mentioned, he was the, 
London School of Economics. <clears throat> and one thing that's fascinating about it is <clears throat> the, the germination of this book began well before the war started, um, but he was at the London School of Economics for the entirety of the war, writing and teaching. You know, people who are familiar with, you know, what was going on in London, especially um, after a few years into World War II, they're being bombed nonstop. And so he didn't really know how it was going to go. <clears throat> um, and so I think that also adds a little bit of extra credibility um, and weight to his message here, especially, you know, as we get into um, the occasion of it and how his concerns were not just in what would happen if Germany won, but what would happen if the Allies won uh, as well. Um, but so should we get a little bit into the process of, you know, just what this began as and its iterations? <clears throat> what do you think? Okay. Yeah. Oh, I still think it'd be interesting because you brought you brought something up that uh, I remember we had a previous conversation. We first talked about uh, doing this project. And one of the things we talked about was his, you know, courage to write this book in a very uncertain time. Right. This was published in 1944. Uh, and I know you had mentioned that, um, you know, th there's a difference between someone writing something for an audience because they hope to sell some books and someone who's writing it because they think this is kind of their deathbed confessional in a way. Yeah, yep. And so you can kind of see this come out when you read the chapters that this guy is very sincere. And to me, like you pointed that out to me and my vision when reading this book was like, this guy was writing this stuff that he was calling out, you know, the Nazis by name, Hitler by name. And, you know, in a week's time that they could be his ruler. And if they yep. read the book, you know, his head's going to the chopping block immediately. So I think it yep. took a lot of courage for him to do this. And it shows time and time again throughout the book, other outside of all the things that he basically predicted. And we talk about Orwell. I mean, you're going to see when we get to those chapters, the influences in Orwell he had. And, uh, you know, that shouldn't be overlooked. No, totally. No, that's, that's a good point. Um, yeah. And it, it's what's interesting about it is that, well, I'll, I'll bring that up when we get to it. Um, so, yeah, so the process of this, just so, so you guys know, and, and Kevin, stop me if I miss anything here. Um, <clears throat> but was he, so he was at the London School of Economics. And in the early 30s, uh, there was um, people were seeing what was going on. Um, well, early, you know, we're talking like 33, you know, 34 ish, whatever. Um, people were starting to be worried about Nazi Germany. And there is this idea circulating among intellectuals. You'll, you'll see time and time again that he calls out the intelligentsia and the intellectuals, and, you know, and those are the people. And it's like, gee, I, I, is, has that changed at all? No. I mean, dude, Thomas Lehman has a book, you know. Yeah, I just wish we had the courage to do that now. <clears throat> right. Um, but where there is these people who genuinely thought that Nazism was an outgrowth of capitalism, as a reaction to socialism. And so they thought that, um, that actually real socialism was the thing that you wanted to do to defeat Nazism because capitalism would lead to Nazism. And, and Hayek was like, this is insane. This is not true. National socialism is indeed genuine socialism. So he wrote a memo to the director of the London School of Economics. <clears throat> um, I forgot what the name of it was, but where he basically said that these are not compatible. Um, liberty and socialism are not compatible. Um, Nazism is true socialism, and it's just the roots of it uh, are both of them stem. And he goes on to talk about the parallels between fascism and socialism. They all stem from the same ideology and the same thought process. 
and so then the memo, he ended up turning into an article and the article turned into a pamphlet uh, and the pamphlet turned, eventually there was, I think he did some lectures and some other things. I remember he was teaching uh, during this time, um, but eventually he turned into the book, The Road to Serfdom. And there's some other stuff in between there where he was working on, on some other projects and then abandoned them. But, and then he turned it into The Road to Serfdom, uh, which again, as Kevin said, was published in 1944. And what's, what's interesting about it is, yeah, like he was, he was talking to the British about the Nazis. And so, but he was really talking to both as, as Kevin said, where it's like, at any moment, the Germans could be coming over. And so he had to have courage to write this the way he wrote it. But as the war started to turn in favor of the allies, and you see this, especially um, towards the end of the book, which is when he's realizing we're going to win, um, probably <clears throat> that he's, he's trying to issue a dire warning to the people in Great Britain um, uh, for the trajectory they're going down. But we'll unpack that again here in a minute. Um, so it's released in 44, <clears throat> has a hell of a time trying to get it published. Um, and because in the United States, uh, the reception was, he was crapped all over by the intelligentsia. But anyway, after the war, he immigrates to the US <clears throat> and Reader's Digest had done a condensed version of it that led to it being very successful in the United States. So there's a huge demand for it. He thought he was going to go there and do a few lectures. Um, but because of the Reader's Digest version, he was traveling by boat from Great Britain to the U.S. Pages. after the war. <clears throat> yeah. 20 pages, yeah. a condensed version, which if you read this book is like, how? How? how yeah, how? How can you possibly do that? What, yeah. but, that but just uh, to put a, a fine you know, bow on that, how American is that? <laughs> True, <laughs> To have yeah. this simplified version of a very complex yep. work. Well, Hayek like, said it was oh, faithful. Yeah, we'll, we'll he, take it. Yeah. Yeah. He did say he thought it was fair. Yeah, he, he, he was very surprised. He said he couldn't have done it himself. And he yep. just, you know, all the credit because he was against yep. it at first. He's like, no, yep. you can't. It's not going to work. Uh, yep. And yeah, of course, only in America. <laughs> only in America. So and then he ends up staying in the U.S. He is at the Chicago School of Economics, um, which as people, if you track just the history of academia in the U.S., the Chicago School has been one of the, I mean, up until recently, I think they're still one of the better ones now, but one of the better schools that fought a lot of this crazy ideology. And I think probably people like Hayek's influence there it, it definitely contribute to that. Um, <clears throat> but so then in 1956, they released an American version, you know, where they changed some of the language, you know, instead of saying like this co country, they said England. Um, but there was another part of that where, and we'll get to some quotes from the 56 edition where, Hayek was seeing the same warnings that he that were true for Great Britain should be true for the United States um, be, because of the New Deal and what people wanted to do with what would go on to become the Civil Rights Act. Um, and he was like, there is some this bloating bureaucracy that's uh, that's taking place. And so he was as much trying. And whenever we get to the the forward to the American edition, that thing is just dense. And I know Kevin's got a ridiculous amount of quotes and stuff. Um, from that uh, and so he did the 56 edition then he did uh, for this book so there's other stuff in between he wrote a book called the fatal conceit um and so he, just a, a real quick go ahead yeah a real quick point in the 56 wherever, edition like one of the the changes they like just a simple uh example of a change they wanted to make was to change the name of the book 
not from road to serfdom. They want to change it. Socialism, comma, the road to serfdom. And he yep. made it a point like, no, I'm not changing this. No. This is not just about socialism. You know, one of the quotes that I'm going to get to, my favorite quote, possibly in any book, um, is it's like, if you just focus, focus this on this narrow category, which just so you know, socialism in America is different than socialism in Europe. Even at that time, there's a kind of a difference yep. in understanding and definitions there. He's like, no, I want this to remain the way it is because it's important that we don't just narrow it on socialism. And as we talk, as we'll talk, you know, later, it's easy for someone who's just super anti-socialist to read the cover and just be like, I love this book. You know, I endorse this book rather yep. than reading the material inside. And although yep. we're in that kind of culture now where you just read the headline, you don't care about the material, you don't care about the body of the work. Um, you know, he did not want to fall into that trap. So, you know, he held yep. his ground on a lot of these things that they wanted to change. Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent point. Um, so then he did the 76 uh, re-release, which is the 20th anniversary of the American release. And again, there's stuff in there where you see him talking about, hey, like this, you know, one of the things I think time and time again, um, well, he did 76. There's another release with the Ford by Milton Freeman in 94. Uh, I think it was 94, somewhere in there. Um, and then this definitive yeah. edition is 2007. Um, but one of the things time and time again, I think, you know, going back to my thought, I was about to say on the 76 one is that the reason why I think there's so many re-releases, so many like reprints, I think it's been printed in like 20 languages. Um, why there's this, it's because it's still relevant. I think the reason why Hayek, like, kept right kept writing about this and kept really is like you guys still aren't listening you're still not paying attention um and i think that that's true even of why this definitive edition was released is because you know it's like people still aren't paying attention people still aren't listening uh and so it's as long as this is still relevant then you know the warning is is still there um i, I don't know if that's how you feel about it but that's that's my take on it yeah. man is it's like well it's not being a dead horse these, in other words these different releases right well, when you read through these releases, what he addresses a lot of times is the the understanding of how language is changing. Um, you know, mm -hmm. socialism, uh, being a liberal, liberalism. It's like every single time that goes through a revolution of change, he catches them and say, okay, you're changing this, but understand what this means, okay? what I'm, Understand what I'm trying to say here, because it's easy to dismiss something once you change the, the language, right? If you just play that language game, you can make any, I mean, one of my favorites, Thomas Sowell quotes is, if you change the definition just one word, you can make any claim true. Um, so every single time he did one of these re-releases, it just seemed like he was catching someone trying to, to slide a new version of socialism past mm. without any sort of criticism yep. at it. So I think it was it's kind really of brilliant the way you do it. I mean, there's a, there's advantages and disadvantages of writing a book. You know, this is what I always think of, you know, when people uh, come out with books is one thing is you're publishing your ideas in, the, in a great, concise way. And you get to lay out all different references. You have something you can't really do in an article when you just post it on, on some website. But the disadvantages is you post all of your ideas, which allows your critic, your critics to look at your ideas and then take them apart and try yep. to destroy them. And, and being able to re-release this type of stuff with just something as simple as a foreword, which these forewords in reality weren't, you know, that long, but they were so concise and to the point, which just matches the tone for the, the, the rest of the book. Um, you know, it, it's so important that he's, I mean, this is like the old version of tweeting, I guess, you know, he's tweeting <laughs> back saying, okay, you're catching me here, but this is not what I meant. And I yep. don't want this to be taken. And he made it very, very clear that he did not want this to be the Bible of the right or the Bible of the left, right? It's it's a, meant to to just give this uh, objective understanding of, you know, the road we go down when we do different policy changes to try to control our plan and economy. And no matter what side does it, 
we're going to want to avoid that because it, it tends to always go down the same road. And I think that's yeah. why the brilliance behind all these re-releases uh, and the importance, like I know some people who read books and they're like, I'm not going to read the foreword or introduction. It's like, I'm just getting to the meat of the book. I'm going to read that. Well, sometimes even the appendices, sometimes it's important to read that because it really oh, yeah. adds this new context to the book that, you know, changes the way, the way you see it. A hundred percent. And I think that that's a good point that you brought up about with the, with the criticisms is because, Hayek was someone who I think later it was maybe Milton Friedman who said that he he responded to he was nice to a fault like he took criticism seriously he took them to heart and basically accepted almost all of them on good faith with a few notable exceptions and really made an attempt to respond to those criticisms appropriately um, and so I think you're dead on the fact that those releases was part of him saying like hey yeah okay fair enough let's talk about it and to give those responses in a very genuine and earnest way, I think also demonstrates his character, to be quite frank, um, that he did take those things to heart and try his best to address them. Because in his mind, it seems to me that he just, you know, one of the things he writes about in, in maybe the introduction uh, uh, is he's like, I'm not the most qualified to do this, but it needs to be done. Um, and I think that he had that, that was like a, um, a North star for him of like, this needs to be done. People need to listen. This needs to happen. Um, and so I think there was a humility there for him that helped kind of fuel the integrity of the work and the integrity of how he responded to the criticisms. Um, so do you want to get into less the occasion of it? Uh, and like, what, yeah. what was the background yeah, for it being released? And then, so I'm just going to go off my notes here and this again, interject anytime. I know you've got a ridiculous amount of, sure. of quotes and stuff. Um, so the the background of this is so Hayek was he was in Austria for a, a large portion of his life he he says later he spent about half his life there and as Kevin mentioned in his biography and so before before he left Austria there were the same kinds of arguments about uh socialism and central planning which we'll get into unpacking what that means here in a minute um, taking place, but a lot of it was done in German and German language. And so that those arguments hadn't really percolated to the other parts of Europe. So Ludwig von Mises um, was also someone who was a, a part of a lot of those arguments. And there were people talking about, like, even before World War I had started, uh, how a wartime planned economy could be used as a template for a peacetime planned economy. Um, and so Hayek, whenever he makes it to to Great Britain, and he's hearing these same things. He's like, wait a second, we've already debunked this stuff. This has been dealt with. And so he starts just trying to warn people about like, no, 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 this is not what you think it is. And especially as this concept of planning or what's known as centralized planning or socialist planning or uh, scientific planning starts to become the thing that people are talking about, especially after the Great Depression hit, um, he begins to get very worried. Uh, and so that's what he's like writing about <clears throat> um, whenever he first issues like that memo and is talking about this stuff. Um, so one of the things that as he saw, and especially, so again, he's talking about this stuff before World War II even starts, right? He's just saying, look, we, I know what happened in Germany. I know what happened, you know, with the Weimar, Weimar Republic. Um, and so, and the rise of Hitler, and he's like, I know where this stuff goes. And one of his main arguments was that um, 
Great Britain didn't rep didn't resemble present day Germany for his time, present day Germany, but the Germany of maybe 15, 20 years before. And so he's like, okay, I saw, I've seen where these arguments go when people embrace them here. Uh, and now with the rise of the Third Reich and National Socialism. Um, and so I don't want that to happen here. And so he starts speaking out against it. And so one of the things he also, especially as World War II started to heat up, was he had this thing that he realized, and again, this is what Germany learned in the wake of the First World War, which is that basically whenever a war happens, um, the entire economy is refocused on the war effort. Um, and the decisions for what's going to be produced, where and when, whatever, are made in a centralized, with a centralized power, with the government. Um, and so they're going to redirect, they're going to say what, what needs to be made, all the, the factories are going to be retooled and everything. And it's not going to be making peacetime consumer goods, but, but wartime goods. Uh, and this is going to lead to the potential for inflation. And inflation hurts everyone, but especially hurts debtors. And during war, especially at this time, you know, people, the government wants people to buy war bonds. So if people are already, if they're in debt, are being hurt by inflation, the government's going to have a hard time getting them to go into further debt by buying these war bonds. Um, and so then the government will implement things like price controls and rationing uh, to try and uh, deal with the inflation aspect. And at this point in time, basically, a free, I know in a very focused wartime economy, there is no free market. All of this is, is centralized. And Hayek's point was, is that um, Germany, World War I Germany, learned that about this, uh, how after you've got all this power and after you've centralized this, you could just keep it going in peacetime. Um, and that was the arguments people were making there. And that's what he was worried that he was seeing socialists in Great Britain arguing they should do in Great Britain. So they're already arguing for planning. World War II is, is about to hit. It's clear that they're going to go to war. And he's already seeing the socialists arguing that this is, hey, look, we're going to have this whole planned thing out. Let's just keep it going. This is where things like socialized medicine came from uh, in Great Britain. And as an enduring thing with the NHS and everything, like social security, all of, all of these things come from this, this type of mentality. Uh, and so he was just worried about the centralized planning. And so he was trying to warn people against it. Um, and so he, he was one of the main things, and this is a, uh, there's like a longer quote that I, I want to get into later. But again, he saw how people who were uh, collectivist and authoritarian, or at least had ideas that would morph into authoritarianism, wanted to exploit a war to the war and take that and bring it into peacetime. And he was already seeing things like Science Magazine was posting articles about how science was going to, uh, I've got a quote here, I'll just read it, I'm not going to try to remember it. Um, they were advocating that science be used as much as it was after or during the war, it should be used after the war um, to help form a more advanced society reconstructed along more rational lines. So there is this idea of social engineering. Um, and if this sounds Marxist to you, it's because it is. Planning, socialist planning, is a direct idea of Karl Marx. Um, Marx uh, saw himself and Engels as scientific socialists, unlike the French, French socialists. They thought this was all just uh, a very rational scientific process. Um, and so this idea of a planned economy is one where there's a centralized power that decides the production of things, how much is going to be produced, and so on and so forth, and price controls even where necessary, as opposed to what a free market economy, which is you know the 
de- demand and supply are the main factors, not you know some bureaucrats in a room. Um, and one of Hayek's main points about planning and centralized planning, there's a, there's a quote here uh, I want to give. There's actually two quotes. Uh, one is from Karl Marx, and then the the other is from uh, from uh, Hayek himself. And then Kevin, just hop in. Um, sure. So Karl, Karl Marx said, and this is in 1890, he said, to my mind, the so-called socialist society is not anything immutable. Its crucial difference from the present order, which is free markets, consists naturally in production organized on the basis of common ownership by the nation of all means of production. And so this directly went into this, uh, the ethos of socialist planning. And Hayek, again, had heard the arguments for planning in Austria and Germany uh, before like decades before, and now he's hearing the same arguments in Great Britain. Um, and here's the thing, here's, yeah, I'll, I'll just give these two quotes from Hayek about planning um, here. And this is something he wrote in uh, an essay, actually in 1939, uh, called Freedom and the Economic System. He said, planning, uh, quote, presupposes a much more complete agreement on the relative importance of the different ends than actually exists. And in consequence, in order to be able to plan, the planning authority must impose upon the people that detailed code of values which is lacking. Even democratic planning would require authority to use a variety of means from propaganda to coercion to implement the plan. And so this is, again, this is before The Road to Serfdom was published as a book. Um, but he, his main point was, is that there's not as much consensus as you think there is. And whenever you have a centralized authority saying, no, it's going to be like this, what do you do with the, with the dissenters, right? So they're going to have to repress them. They're going to have to use propaganda and coercion to deal with the people that don't agree with the centralized plan. Um, and then, so the, here's another quote from the Freedom and the Economic System, again, this is 1939. And, and then... We'll, we'll go on to the to the other uh, forwards and stuff. In the end, agreement that planning is necessary, together with the inability of the democratic assembly to agree on a particular plan, must strengthen the demand that the government or some single individual should be given powers to act on their own responsibility. Get rid of the filibuster. It becomes more and more accepted belief that if one wants to get things done, the responsible director of affairs must be freed from the fetters of democratic procedure get rid of the filibuster. Um, and what, so what he's saying is those who want to uh, implement planning won't find the consensus they, they think they will, and they'll have to use force. Um, so yeah, that, that was the other quote there um, that I wanted to get, give on planning. So the point is, is and we'll, we'll keep going back to what planning is, but whenever you hear centralized planning, think it's, it's price controls, it's rationing, it is basically, so there, is, there was Soviet planning, Stalin implemented planning. They had a five-year plan that they implemented. Um, planning was a, a straight-up socialist idea that led to authoritarian measures because, again, and you'll hear this as the thesis in the book, um, time and time again, Hayek will emphasize the idea that the means necessary to uh, maintain and implement and enforce socialism are, not, are things that socialists today would not be comfortable doing. And so his point is, is, you don't realize the force, the coercion, the authoritarian measures, the suppressions of liberty that are required to implement your ideas. It sounds great. It sounds wonderful. But you don't know what this is going to take. You don't know the cost of this thing. And we're seeing it 
in Nazi Germany right now, we're seeing the cost. Uh, and so we don't want those same things to happen here. So as we get into the future chapters um, and future videos, when you will try to continually hit home, when you hear planning, just like when you hear CRT, we want people to think racism, want people to think evil. When you hear planning, think socialism, think communism, think authoritarianism, think fascism, um, because they all, it all stems from the same ideology, the same idea of just centralized control and collectivism. And you have to deal with the dissenters uh, in a way that you're not gonna be comfortable with if you're a good person. So Kevin, I don't know if that does a good job in your mind uh, or adequate at least of, of discussing the occasion and who he was talking to there. Um, I'm sure I actually probably missed some things. Um, what, but what, what would you add to that? Yeah, no, I think you, you did a great job. I have a few notes there, but I didn't want to stop you. You're, you're on a roll and I think you're doing great. But um, I mean, these notes will go quick, I think. So yeah, when you talk about planning, I mean, I think two people now, right, 2021, they don't hear that word ever. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's because people aren't typically dumb enough to reuse words like that. You know, they have they're not going to redefine it. So normally when I when I hear something that's against a free market or where they call capitalism a free market, they go to a fixed yep. market. Right. They're fixing something, whether that be price controls or, or making sure that um, you know they, they put limits uh, via regulation on certain things. So they don't they kind of scrap the word planning. That's why people today might not be like, oh, planning. I've never really heard it used in economic terms like that. That is, you know, that's why uh, people aren't going to try to recycle that term. Um, but to, to go back, you know, a little bit, especially the wartime stuff. So I've been watching the, the Netflix documentary World War Two in color. Um, like it's terrific. I, I love that. I'm not really a history buff because I don't, I can't memorize history like a lot of other people do, but I do like to learn about it. Uh, but one of the interesting things, you know, when you talk about wartime economies is America's role before they were forced in via Pearl Harbor into World War II, um, they were extremely valuable because we were an industrial country. Yep. And so to switch around our industry to wartime industry to produce wartime goods instead of all the other goods we were producing before was very, very lucrative. Yep. I mean, that was our, our main role there. And now you can see, you know, that does boost the economy. And you can kind of see as to why you'd want to continue that trend into peacetime. But I think, uh, you know, Hayek, I think, brought this up and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit here. But, you know, his his response to that is wartime is a temporary condition. Yep. Peacetime should not be a temporary condition. So why would you use the terms in a temporary condition into something you want to last? Yep. That's the point there is like, why would you use this thing that's going to solve a temporary problem or be useful temporarily and try to use it in a time that you don't expect or that, that you want to be, uh, you know, continuous in peacetime? Like, why would you use it there? Why would you think the strategies work under these two very, very opposing conditions? So I yep. think... You know, that's really what he wanted to drive in. And then even though stuff changed in Great Britain a great deal after the war and it was because of the war, like those things that they snuck in. Um, and he even talks about, you know, be wary of any politician who use wartime language, right? The war on drugs, the war on terror, the war yeah. on you name it. They're going to use that terminology because it always kind of, you know, to the people who are going to be giving their tax dollars to this war. They're always like, OK, this is a duty that I have to fill. And so they use this wartime type of terminology to go through any, you know, policy that they want to move forward. I mean, we see it a lot now um, with, uh, you know, the uh, what they say it's a health hazard or, or uh, um, you know, something yeah. they want to bring out as as, you know, racism is unhealthy. So we're going to use the public 
you know, healthcare system or try to use a public healthcare system to solve it. You know, that's how they try to, yep. you know, they're going to figure out whatever the population is most aware of at the time, most consciously aware of at the time, and try to use that language to push whatever policy forward. So those, that's yep. the only small notes I'd add to what you well, put in there. So I have, this seems like as good a time as any to, to, let, to dig into that thought a little bit, because I actually have that quote from the, from the introduction that you just mentioned. Um, because this was one of the ones that I think as we get into contemporary relevance, especially as I think about, um, so someone like AOC talking about how FDR, you know, mobilized the economy and that's what we need to do with the climate, you know, and just other insane bullshit, you know, this is Hayek writing about this in, you know, 44, um, but, but this is from the, the introduction from the definitive edition, uh, quote, though much depends how one defines one terms. His, his being Hayek was a message that in, invites more than occasional re-examination. Another theme evident perhaps more explicitly in this introduction than in specific passages in Hayek's own text, but nonetheless very much part of his underlying motivation writing the book is Hayek's warning concerning the dangers that times of war pose for established civil societies. For it is during such times, hard-won civil liberties are most likely all too easily to be given up. Even more troubling, politicians instinctively recognize the seductive power of war. Times of national emergency permit the invocation of a common cause and a common purpose. War enables leaders to ask for sacrifices. It, prevents, it presents an enemy against which all segments of society may unite. This is true of real war, but because of its ability to unify disparate groups, savvy politicians from all parties find it effective to invoke war metaphors in a host of contexts. The war on drugs, the war on poverty, and the war on terror are but three examples from recent times. What makes these examples even more worrisome than true wars is that none has a logical endpoint. Each may be invoked forever. Hayek's message was to be wary of such martial invocations. His specific fear was that for a war to be fought effectively, the power and size of the state must grow. No matter what rhetoric they employ, politicians and the bureaucracies over which they preside love power. And power is never easily surrendered once the danger, if there ever even was one, has passed. Though eternal vigilance is sage advice, surely wartime, or when politicians would try to convince us that it is such a time, is when those who value the preservation of individual liberty must be most on guard. And so I read that. I mean, that, there's a reason I transcribed all that from my Audible because I was like, that's what we see with COVID. That's what you see with the climate. I mean, we see that time and time again. And just it's what he's saying there is like there is no logical endpoint. They'll use that to justify this massive consolidation of power and they're not going to give it back power you know I, that book i read um the age of entitlement you know he said for whatever reason temporary you know power once granted uh you know whatever the reason it was originally given is rarely if ever uh given back it just isn't um and so that's and savvy politicians will use that rhetoric well what is aoc quoted fdr time and time again um, and I've heard even uh, our benevolent uh, uh, Joe Biden, who is very, uh, he's totally all there mentally. I don't know why anyone would think otherwise, uh, quote the same thing about FDR and stuff with COVID um, and with the climate and with a host of other their pet projects, because they can just use that metaphor and to try and rally people around and give them some sense of purpose. But it's all just about 
gaining power. And, and like he said, this is, it's those times. And you think about the COVID is one that really hit me whenever he said, um, that, that that's when I, I, I scrolled past it, but that wartime is when your hard won civil liberties are most at risk is during the war, whether it's a real war or a metaphorical war, that's when you have to be most on guard. And COVID, man, that's, it just, that's just what paused in my head. I'm like, lockdowns, COVID, vaccine passports, like, you know what I mean? And so it, it's the ideas he talked about. I mean, we're almost 80 years out, you know, well, from the first essay he wrote, we're, we're damn near 90 years. Um, and, and it's, he knew, he knew it's like one of those things, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. It's like, if you understand human nature and you understand these processes, you know, it's not prophecy. It's just, I've heard people say people like Orwell or, uh, someone like Hayek or, or soul or, or, um, um, John Stuart Mill or to Tocqueville or whatever, that they're like prophetic. And it's like, no, these are just people who understand how a thing works when it's allowed to work as it works. That's it. They just know how this thing works. Um, and that if you give certain things free reign to do their thing, this is where they're going to lead. It's not, it's like, you know, the example I give is if I have all of the things necessary to make napalm, um, it doesn't matter what country I'm in. It doesn't matter what year it is. It doesn't matter if I'm on a boat or if I'm in a windmill, it doesn't matter. Napalm, the, I have the recipe here. I have the ingredients. I put it together. I have napalm. It doesn't matter. And so these are people who just understood you get these ingredients and put them together. They're going to create the same thing every single time, um, you know, maybe to varying degrees, but this is where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to get to your point to, about, you know, people who seem prophetic, I mean, when people talk about Orwell, I mean, or Orwell, you, you read his other works like Road to Wigan period. The guy was an yep. investigative journalist. Yep. He was the prototype. And I think, you know, the our investigative journalists of today, those of you listening on audio or audio only, I just put up air quotes there. <laughs> um, <laughs> they can learn a lot, you know, from what he did. Um, so I think, you know, that, that is why they seem prophetic because they're paying attention. It's not, it's not going to say it's, it's difficult, uh, especially with all these different messages and, and, uh, you know, narratives uh, floating around. It's, it's not easy to always stay on task, but, um, you know, I think you hit it on the head here. And, and what I was trying to say before I couldn't think of the, the right phrase, I mean, we are, are going through all these different wars, wartime language was the next pot or the, the latest popular, you know, uh, crisis that, that affected the world at that time is World War II. Now we have COVID, which is a legitimate, you know, public health crisis. And now we're starting to see everything today being relabeled as a public health crisis. I mean, we have yep. racism is a public health crisis, infrastructure is a public health crisis. So you're seeing those words getting flipped out to what is most relevant to get the people most activated at the time. So in reality, to me, obviously, F.A. Hayek's an economist here, but he, he did his own investigation to understand what are the origins of these ideas popping up and what trends do you see before totalitarianism rears its ugly head again. And he, you know, he marks it down. It's like Germany... Everyone always looks at Germany and say, well, you know, we're never going to turn into Germany. Why would we ever uh, turn into Nazi Germany? It's like, well, yeah, you're looking at, you know, right before it happens. You're not looking at 20 years before it happens and you're not understanding the trend that takes you there. If you understood that, you'd probably be pretty scared looking back at yourself and being like, man, what was I doing yep. uh, to contribute to this? And and uh, I think there's a quote, maybe we'll get it to later. And so I probably wouldn't even mention this now, but, uh, you know, there's, it's just, you, you can't just think that it is, 
a people. You can't just think the German people are are inherently mm, bad, yeah. and that's why it ended up this way. And I have a quote that's yep. gonna I can I can go through it toward the end here, but um, don't think it's just the people; it's the ideas, right? Once those ideas get in your brain and you think that you can fix something because you're a pure of heart person, that, that you can do it. And maybe it just wasn't the right person at the time. Uh, don't be so sure of yourself. Yep. Yeah. Real, real communism hasn't been tried. Real socialism hasn't been tried. Um, yeah, I know that's exactly right. And real fast. So I, I had to double check. I, th I thought this was the case. So Wigan Pier was written in 37. And so that's Orwell was a socialist initially. Um, and he writes the road to Wigan Pier, and you a, see him actually socialist to... as he understood it, which is an important yeah, right, right detail. Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. he understood it. Yeah. No, that's right. Um, and then he writes the road to Wigan Pier. His that starts to fall apart. He reviews Road to Serfdom, which is published in forty four. What comes out one year later? Animal Farm, nineteen forty five, and then uh, nineteen eighty four in nineteen forty nine, and so. Orwell, you know, you see these shirts. I, I think Carlin has a shirt or a hat says make Orwell fiction again. Mm. Orwell was, I think, very obviously wi wildly influenced by, um, by Hayek. Not just Hayek. Again, you, you read Wigan, Wigan Pier and the way he describes that stuff. Yeah, I think that's actually free on Audible or Google Books. I know it's uploaded to YouTube also. That's, I listen to it from some free source. I don't have it downloaded on Audible. Um, but it's clear that that made a, a pretty indelible uh, impact on him. And, and so... But yeah, so behind the Orwell, you know, part, at least part of it, you know, was, was the Hayek. And behind Hayek is, is, I think, Mises also in part as well.